course, because we did not get to really dig into it very much, more so just overview the importance of what was being stated in relation to the previous two verses specifically. And so we're going to continue this morning in verses 21 through 23. And though, again, we'll review as I always do to help you to understand where we are contextually in the, in the passage, yet we will, and to remind you, because I know, I know for a fact that everyone doesn't remember you know how I know that? Because when we're in a theology class and I make a statement and ask a question, no one remembers. <laughs> so it's good for us to review and to get back into the text again, having a week of time separated from our study. So we will do so. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Mike, if you would, would you pray for us, please, brother? Amen. Thank you, brother. You can be seated. Last week, we began, as I mentioned, our examination of verses 21 through 23 of Colossians chapter 1. And within these verses, Paul emphasized, pointed this out to you, and also showed you in relation to Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians, which of course precede Colossians, canonically speaking, as it's, as it's listed or as it's provided within Scripture, the order in which it's provided. And so within these verses, Paul emphasized, if you recall, we dealt with this, the past, the present, and the future of the Colossian believers. In Colossians, Paul lists this in a different order than what we would conventionally state it, as I just did. For instance, past, present, and future. Instead of dealing with it in that manner, we see that Paul listed first the past, as would we, and we see that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you, that were sometime a and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Here, Paul is talking about what they once were, where they were. Then he deals with the future. Instead of the present, he moves right to the future. In Colossians 1.22, when he says, to present you, God has reconciled you for in Christ and the body of his flesh for this purpose, to present you and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And then we see Paul deals with the present in Colossians 1.23 when he says, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So Paul addressed this matter of the past, present, and future in a different order than we would expect. Yet again, we see that he did so for a reason. And I showed you in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians where he does the same thing. For instance, if you recall in Ephesians chapter 1, we see the present condition or position of the believers at Ephesus in Christ. Then in chapter 2, he deals with their past, and then he moves on to their future. So in Ephesians, he deals with the present first, then the past, and then the future. While in Philippians, he, he personally gives an example of forgetting those things which are behind the past, 
reaching forth into those things which are before the future. But it says, where I've obtained, let us walk in the same. Let us continue the present. So he gives the same order in Philippians on a personal uh, level or experience and exemplifies what is to be for even the church at Colossae or, or at Philippi. And he does so in Colossians, giving the order in the same manner as that which he did in Philippians, the past, the future, and the present, as we just saw. So we begin with the past. Let's look at that quickly. In verse 21, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Paul states here in the past that these believers were sometime or formerly at a certain time alienated. They were estranged from God is what he's saying. They were strangers. And they were strangers in their, dif- in their disposition, in their thoughts, in their attitude. And then he says, by wicked works or evil deeds. Now, the attitude and the actions of which Paul speaks in verse 21 of the unregenerate man reveals the hatred for all that is righteous and holy. I told you last week, men are not only unregenerate, but also regenerate by nature. See that here when he says alienated and enemies. They were strangers and they were enemies, intentional enemies against God and righteousness by default. Some may say, well, I never really hated God even prior to... No, you had a hatred towards God and towards righteousness and towards holiness. Even if you were ignorant of it, you still did not want what's holy and righteous. Now, you may have wanted the benefits of that, but you didn't want holiness and righteousness. You were not pursuing after godly righteousness you may have even pursued self-righteousness which paul himself did but yet he was not pursuing godly righteousness prior to being regenerated then second we see paul uh, rather than dealing with the present address the future as i mentioned in verse 21 he says yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight now, I told you last week again to remind you that to be holy is to be sanctified or to be set apart. When the scripture says, sanctify the whole God whole, or sanctify the Lord God holy, uh, he's not saying that we can cleanse and purify God. Of course, that's not what that means. It means that we are recognizing God is set apart unto himself. He is holy. He is unlike we are. We are not like he is. And he is to himself alone, self-sufficient. He is, he is, he needs nothing. He needs no one. And he is, separated, as in none can compare to him. That's what we are being told. So to be holy is to be sanctified or to be set apart. Then he said, unblameable. To be unblameable is to be without blemish. And unreprovable is to be blameless or to be above reproach. So God delivered these Colossian believers from their past so that he might ensure their future with him in holiness and righteousness. And that's what Paul is saying here. So being, listen, being saved... And this is so important for you to recognize. And if you genuinely are a born-again believer, you already know this truth. And you may not be born again still intellectually or intelligently recognize this. Salvation is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. Salvation is not, okay, just secure your eternity and so that you don't have to worry about the present. The reality is that God has reconciled us through the body of, of the flesh of his Son, our Lord Jesus, that he might present us holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. And that is a process that begins at the moment that we are born again. There is a sanctification process that is beginning in us. We positionally are already sanctified, obviously, at that point. We recognize that. But yet now that spirit, the Spirit of God within us is working that out as we are submitting to him, as we are sanctifying ourselves, setting ourselves apart, 
physically speaking unto God, presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, sanctified unto God, which is our genuine worship, our ministry of worship. And so we are doing that because God is within us. So the point being, someone who views salvation as, I know I'm going to heaven, and therefore I can just do whatever I want, live like I want now, and I have this eternal security. No, you don't. There is no eternal life present within one who thinks and lives in such a fashion. There is a desire and hunger for righteousness, and we're going to see that even this is so pertinent to the text. We're going to see that in this text. Look again at verse 21 with me, because I want to contrast this, and I'll show you this again in a moment. And you that were sometime alienated, separated, strange from God, strangers, and enemies in your mind by wicked works. They were already estranged. They were, they were an enemy of God inwardly within which manifested it by what? Wicked works. So the wicked works are a result. The wicked works are not why they are estranged. The wicked works are the result of being estranged. And that is very important for you to understand. Now, wickedness separates us from God? Of course it does. But let us remember original sin. Original sin, Adam's sin, which is now inherently within us, the wickedness of Adam, because we are of his bloodline. We have an inherent sinful nature. And because of that, we are already estranged from God in this life. And our wicked works just manifest the fact that our evidence that we are estranged from God. And then our wicked works continue to just keep us estranged from God. And so it will be until God intervenes. And so we must recognize, and again, a great verse to show us that is in Ephesians chapter 2, when in verses 1 through 3, Paul is explaining again the past of the Ephesian believers when he says, and you who were, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, the ch- by nature, the children of wrath, even as others. Verse 4, you know the two words. But God, but God who is rich in mercy. So the point is, this is where we were, like the Ephesian believers, but God. So God intervenes. So the wicked works are a result of being estranged from God. However, wicked works keep us away from God until God intervenes on our behalf. And that's what Ephesians is teaching us. That's what Paul is saying here as well about being reconciled. We were this, but he got notice. We were uh, enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, but unreprovable in his sight. So again, the point here is that God isn't saying, okay, well, I'm just going to save you, and then whatever is, is. No. He redeems us and sets us apart to himself. And that is a process that is going to be revealed through time, and ultimately in eternity it is instantly revealed. And, I, and, you know, often we speak, I, let, me, let me digress for one moment. We speak of the th- thief on the cross. And, of course, that is the only death, quote, unquote, deathbed salvation experience that you see in that capacity, right? I mean, here he is hanging on the cross, literally dying. And, and at one moment, he's cursing Christ. At one moment, he's throwing blame towards him with the other thief. And then, all of a sudden, he says, what are we doing? This man's done nothing wrong. And, and God opened his eyes to show him, while the other thief still remained just like he was, this one says, wait a minute, this is the son of God. And, and Lord, remember me, remember? And so he makes that statement, Lord, remember me. Now, 
here's the point. Somebody say, well, you don't see any, any change in that man's life. I mean, he didn't have a chance to go out and prove that he was different. His words proved that he was different. Here he is literally dying going, this is the son of God. By the way, that is repentance. Repentance isn't, oh, I shouldn't have stole. No, repentance is God is who he says he is. Christ is the redeemer. This is the very son of God. So his whole heart and mind changed concerning who God was, which God wrought that change in him, which resulted in him now testifying of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and that this is the only man in whom there's any hope which I can find. I am dying. I am a dying, hopeless, helpless man. Remember me. There's his words, remember me. I'm reminded of a, a message Alistair Begg preached. I'm going to paraphrase this, obviously, but at this point, I, I think it's important to share this with you. I'm reminded of a message Alistair Begg preached when he's speaking about the, uh, about the thief on the cross. And he's going, when he, when he got to, uh, when, he, when he appeared with the Lord in, in, in glory, you know, someone may have come up to him. And of course, he's embellishing this to make the point, okay? So bear with me. He says, someone may have come up to him and said, well, sir, uh, how, why are you here? Were you a Sunday school teacher? Of course, there weren't even Sunday schools. We know that, right? I'm just saying. And so he's like, he's like, uh, no. He goes, well, were you a pastor? No. He said, were you, were you an apostle? No. Were you a, a preacher? No. Were you a prophet? No. He says, well, how did you get here? Why are you here? He said, because the man in the middle told me I could come. And that is the reality of it, isn't it? I mean, the only basis by which we have any acceptance before God is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the reality is that this man understood. My only hope is to cry out for mercy to this man in the middle who is the Son of God. So he had a change of heart, a change of mind. And so even in his life, my point was coming back to where we were, is that he was sanctified, and we see that sanctification being manifested even in his dying breath. He couldn't get off the cross and do anything, but it didn't matter. He is positionally sanctified, which resulted in a change in his whole thought process, his attitude, his words, and his behavior. You can't tell me that thief on the cross wasn't changed when you begin to compare the two. You compare the two together and can see where they were prior to the Lord opening his eyes to who Jesus is and look at him at his point of death saying, Lord, remember me. You don't see the other one doing that. The other one's still saying, hey, get us off here. If you're really the son of God, then you can get us down. You can get us out of this situation. By the way, isn't that how most people view salvation? Oh, if you're really, God, if you're really there, then get me out of this mess. So God delivered these Colossian believers to be holy, unblameable, unreprovable from their past so that he would ensure their future with him in holiness and righteousness. Paul concludes his summary of the past, present, and future, charging the Colossians regarding the present. Verse 23, and this is where, we, where we've been and where we'll be for this morning. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So this morning we're going to continue our study of this verse, specifically verse 23, in which Paul addresses the matter of the present responsibility and position and condition of the Colossian believers. Last week I explained that although some may view this statement in verse 23 as though it is a conditional statement, as though God's work of reconciliation is dependent on the actions of the individual rather than the work and promise of God, for when to hold such a belief, one must absolutely dismiss the entirety of the teaching of the Scriptures concerning the sufficiency and faithfulness of Jesus Christ to perform and perfect his work of redemption. 
I previously told you that the if we find in the beginning of verse 23 is not a condition for reconciliation, but it is the evidence, as we saw in verse 21, concerning those who are alienated and enemies in their mind. This is and by wicked works, evidenced by wicked works. If here is not a condition for reconciliation, but it is the evidence, in, in contrast to verse 21, of one who has been reconciled by God. I once again point your attention to the previous statements made concerning the past of the Colossian believers that I referenced a while ago. Verse 21, read it again with me. And you, that were sometime alienated, formerly, and enemies in your mind by wicked works. That statement is not saying that the wicked works is what made them an enemy of God, as I said a moment ago, but that enmity existed because, or between them God, and was manifested by their wicked works. Just as the wicked works was a result and manifestation of the enmity and hostility which existed within the heart and the disposition or attitude of those alienated from God, in verse 21, in like manner, the expectation or the results of the one who has been reconciled will be a life of continued growth in truth and continued pursuit of righteousness. Paul addressed his desire, which was also the responsibility of the Colossian church, to live appropriately according to the call of God in their lives in verse 10. Remember what he's already stated to these believers in Colossae. Verse 10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. When Paul makes a statement that you might walk worthy of the Lord, he is not saying that we can become worthy of the, what God has done for us or that we can walk in a manner in which, oh, now all of a sudden we can impress God with how we live. What he is saying is that we are equipped and enabled when we submit to God, obviously, who has redeemed us, to live a life that is according to the grace we've been given, according to the mercy we have received, according to the love of God which is bestowed unto us. So if it's not a condition for our reconciliation and promise of a certain future with the Lord, but rather the if is the evidence of a life resting and trusting in the preeminent and faithful Christ who is sufficient in and of himself to complete that which he has begun. As believers in Jesus Christ, I have told you that we are dependent upon our Lord Jesus to perfect the work which he began. Hebrews 12.2 makes this very clear when the scripture says, Looking unto Jesus, the author, the progenitor of faith, and perfecter, the author and finisher, the perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's interesting, isn't it? When he says, looking unto Jesus, he reminds us that Christ willingly gave himself. But understand, too, it's through his, the description that Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, it's through the description the writer of Hebrew provides that we understand that the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down the right hand of the throne of God, that he is the author and the finisher of this faith. He's explaining how that is in Hebrews 12, too, as well. So we continue examining the details this morning of Paul's statements within verse 23. Look again with me at the verse. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. The if at the beginning of this verse is provided context by the grammatical structure of the statement to which it is connected. We read, 
if ye continue in the faith. And specifically, the statement, if ye continue. And the statement, if ye continue, and this is important, it is in the present tense, active voice, and indicative mood. And the grammatical structure or the syntax used in this passage is vital to our understanding of the truth Paul stated within the verse. The present tense, of course, is the tense portraying an action in the process or state of being with no assessment of the action's completion. The active voice indicates that the subject is performing the verbal action or is in the state described by the verb. And the indicative mood is the mood in which the action of the verb or the state of being it describes is actual as opposed to possible or contingent on attention. It is the mood of assertion, which is defined as a confident and forceful statement of fact or belief. So the grammatical structure of the statement clarifies the consistency of the statement as it relates to the entirety of the Scripture's teaching concerning our confidence in the redemptive work of Christ. So when Paul said if, he was not, he w- he was not only making a statement of expectation, but also one of confident belief that the statement is a fact within the lives of those who've been reconciled by God. Let me ask you something. Do you think for one moment, going back to verse 21, we must compare these two verses to have a grasp and understanding, a proper understanding of what Paul is saying? When he says, you are alienated, estranged, strangers to God, by the hostility as an enemy in your mind, the hostility that existed, by wicked works. Do you think for one moment that Paul questioned that Anyone who, had a, who was alienated from God, anyone who was estranged from God, anyone who was an enemy of God, do you think he was questioning, well, they may, they may commit wicked works? It's possible, you know, they may or may not, but, you know, probably more than, more than likely, if somebody is an enemy of God, if someone's at hostility with God, if someone's a stranger from God, then there's a real good chance that they're going to do wicked things. No. That's a pretty definitive statement. They were enemies, alienated strangers, hostility existed between God and them. Therefore, their lives manifested wicked works. Now, that does not mean that everyone committed the same degree of wickedness as someone else, but that's irrelevant. It's wicked nonetheless. Remember what the Old Testament teaches us about our righteousness says, plural, interestingly enough. But our righteousness says are as filthy rags. So there is no righteousness we can offer God. We commit wicked works because it comes out of a wicked heart before we are redeemed. In like manner, when Paul makes this statement in verse 23, he's not saying, well, if someone's been reconciled to God, then they'll probably be rooted and grounded and settled. They'll probably you know, follow after righteousness. They will probably have a hunger for truth. Maybe not, but probably. Now again, I will concede this fact that apparently not everyone follows after Christ with the same amount of passion as others. Not everyone is at the same degree of maturity, obviously, and some take many more years than others to grow and mature to certain levels or places in their life of spiritual maturity. And we're different people and different circumstances, and that is a given. But let me say to you, that which is alive will grow. 
And if you have spiritual life in you, there will be spiritual growth in you. And there will be a spiritual hunger in you. And there will be spiritual desire. Again, when the scripture says in Peter, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that, that ye may grow thereby. Notice the wording there. I think that's been misrepresented many times. People will make a statement, oh, at, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. No. It's as newborn babes, you desire, it's an imperative, you desire the sincere milk of the word. It's a command. And so that you may grow thereby. And the fact of the matter is those who are redeemed, those who are believers, are going to have a hunger for righteousness, just like the unbeliever will continue in wickedness. And that's the point. Having established this truth of the basis of Paul's statement, there's a question which must be answered. In what was Paul confident relating to his statements within verse 23. First of all, Paul had confidence that those reconciled by God will continue to live in the truth of God. Look at verse 23. Continue in the faith grounded and settled. Continue means to remain or to stay. The faith refers to belief. And the faith is not just one's personal beliefs or beliefs, belief or beliefs, but it is in reference to the faith as spoken by Jude in his epistle. Jude verse 3 says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, that not common like in generic, common in that it was, it was shared among all of those who are redeemed, the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. That is the only definite article that we have. There are, there are three articles, right? In English grammar, you have indefinite articles and definite articles, the definite, one definite article. The indefinite articles are A and an. Not and, an, a, an. And the definite article is the. So it's speaking of something specific, not generalized. So this isn't your faith, my, no, the faith. This is the truth, the concrete foundation of the Christian belief, the faith. Grounded means establish or lay the foundation. And settled means firm steadfastness or steadfast. So those who've been reconciled by God, Paul is stating, will remain in the faith. This is the expectation, but it is a confident expectation. It's not an expect, it's not if conditionally or hypothetically. Now, in turn, let me say this. Those who might claim to have been reconciled by God, if they did not continue rooted, grounded, settled, then that's showing the manifestation and evidence that they were never reconciled. So the if has a bearing in the sense of the one who may claim or believe or state something that just isn't true. But the if is not those who are reconciled genuinely, oh, then, you know, there's a chance you won't remain settled. There's a chance you won't. No, no. And we're going to see why this is so as we continue. Not only the grammatical structure or, again, the syntax of the statement or the verse, but also in light of all of what Scripture teaches us about this. At least a... Uh, 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 overview of that. We won't go through every passage, obviously. So we see here that those who have been reconciled by God will remain in the faith once and for all time delivered to the saints, as Jude defines it, as God has established them firmly in said faith. These facts are the result of God's work of reconciliation as those who have been redeemed. God does not merely, and you must understand this, and you know this already, you should, God does not merely give us a second chance. Nowhere in this epistle do you find where Paul says, and God, who's given you a second chance. No, you were enemies in your mind and alienated. 
God removed that for the sake of you having a second chance. No, God reconciled you. He didn't give you a second chance. He reconciled you. And by the way, all of these components of salvation, I need to bring this to you for a moment into view because of how they intertwined. When you look at, at reconciliation, again, to remove the hostility, but that's all God has done. What else has he done? Of course, he saved us. He's sanctified. But what, he's justified us. And what is justification? He has imputed to us the righteousness of Jesus. He has made us right with himself. He didn't just remove the hostility and say, okay, I'm giving you a clean slate, a second chance. Do the best you can. He didn't do that. Thank God he didn't do that. You remember the example that's given us in the Old Testament when the woman swept out, cleaned out her house that had the, the spirit, evil spirit in it. Remember what happened? She sweeps her house out, cleans it out, empties her house, and what happens? Seven more come in. The point is, we don't need just a clean house. We need a field house that has no room for anything else. And the point is, God's not only removed the hostility and emptied us out and cleaned us, he's filled us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So it's not only, it's not only that I've been reconciled to God, I have been justified by him as well. So God doesn't merely give us a second chance. But as Paul says in Colossians 1, 12 through 14, he has transplanted us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Colossians 1, 12 through 14, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet or qualified us, remember, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us or transplanted us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Second, Paul had confidence that those reconciled by God would not only continue to live in the truth of God, but they will continue to live in the promises of God. Look at verse 23. He goes on to say, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard. The hope of the gospel is referring to the confident expectation of the good news. Paul explains that God's work of redemption grounds one in the truth of his word and promises. Our confidence in Christ is objectively rooted in the claims of Christ as, it, as evidenced by his spirit who not only dwells within us, but also bears witness of this truth. That is the truth of God. But first we see we are confident in Christ himself. Colossians 1.27 To whom... God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope, the confident expectation of glory. We also are confident in the fulfilled promises of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20. As God is true, our word of you was not yea and nay, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. Verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. We are confident in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 3 through 6. Paul says again, let's read it. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since the, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you 
since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God. Look, this is the same book, Colossians, the same chapter, chapter 1. And Paul says here, to those who genuinely have been born again, reconciled, he says, the gospel which you've heard, the gospel you've received, guess what it does? It brings forth fruit. Paul is saying the same thing in Colossians 1.23. He is not contradicting himself. So in verse 23, when he says that it was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, we understand that he is stating that the gospel, the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, the, the promises of the gospel, he's saying the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, not only the death, burial, and resurrection, that's just the beginning, but it's all the good news of Jesus Christ as we learn of who he is. That this is the foundation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation of our confidence. It's the foundation of our very existence. It is in his gospel. It is in his work. It is in his faithfulness in which we have all confidence. So Paul is not saying here in verse 23, if, so, you know, work hard, strive hard, try hard, because if you prove, if you prove to continue in it, look, you can't continue on your own to begin with. You cannot make yourself grow. You grow because you've been transplanted from darkness into light. You bear fruit because you've been transplanted from darkness into the kingdom of Christ. This is why you bear fruit. For the Lord is faithful to complete that which he has begun. He does not leave our salvation. He does not leave our sanctification. He does not leave our glorification up to us nor does he leave it up to the measure of our faithfulness. I'm going to say what so many do at the end of a service, ready? And all God's people said, you should be so eternally grateful that none of this is left up to you. Listen, if salvation were left up to your faithfulness, if sanctification were left up to your faithfulness, if glorification was left up to your faithfulness, then we would all be hopeless and helpless still. He is faithful to complete that which he has begun. I I conclude with these two verses I gave you last week as well. It is in the faithfulness of God alone that we are confident. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24 sums it all up. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Jude verses 24 and 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. And say it with me. Amen. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your word.